This week on Geek Explained, part three of Spidey Month goes into the world of video games, as I geek explain why Spider-Man PS4 isn't just my favorite Spidey game, but stars the one true Spider-Man. Welcome back to Geek Explain, the podcast for comics, film, TV, and more. You name it, we Geek Explain it. I'm your host, Eric Gazana, and today's episode is all about Spider Man PS4. But before we get to there, I just want to give a quick shout out to my new soundtrack, who provided the 8 bit rendition of the Spider Man theme that you just heard. He does amazing remixes of different uh, VGM music, including uh, different sounds and styles from 8 bit, SNES, Genesis all that stuff, remixing classics and making them super fun to listen to, just like you heard from the uh, Spider-Man theme. So I'm going to link his uh, Bandcamp website down in the description of this podcast. Check him out. Uh, once again, thank you to him for allowing us to use that uh, Spider-Man 8-bit theme. So today we're going to be talking about everything that pertains to Spider-Man PlayStation 4. We're also going to be going through a packed news week, our weekly review for the newest episode of Swamp Thing, as well as this week's comics countdown. But for now, let's jump over to the news. Alright, so this is our new segment for the week of July 15th, 2019, uh, title pending, of course. We've got actually a lot of stuff. I was um, I was pretty certain that we were going to have kind of a slow news week, but we actually got some stuff going on, so I'm excited for it. We've got film, TV, comics, and miscellaneous news coming for you. Let's start off with the TV news. Uh, first off, Zack Snyder, who is um, probably one of the most polarizing figures in geek culture uh, today or really ever, announced that he is doing a an anime partnering with Netflix to kind of reimagine Norse mythology, which I think is amazing. Um, Zack Snyder's imagery and his kind of uh, visual style really lends itself to uh, anime, which is very stylized, very hyper, um, I would say uh, not exceptionally realistic but very uh stylistic which i think really lends uh really well into his kind of filmmaking style um especially with something like norse mythology where he did um it's not the same but obviously 
But uh, 300, he had a lot of really cool moments in that film, which I really enjoyed. And I think he's going to bring that to this too. It's going to be his first animated project, which I think is interesting that they're swinging so wide with something like Norse mythology. But I'll, I'll tune in. I'll check it out. Netflix has been doing really well with their uh, animated and anime projects, such as Castlevania. So I'm looking forward to it. Also... Uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier has a new writer. It is Derek Kolstad. If you might recognize that name, it's because he is one of the creators of John Wick. Uh, he's one of the writers who created the John Wick character, and he's going to be joining up with the team writing for Falcon and Winter Soldier. I'm really excited about that because one of the best parts about uh, John Wick are the action scenes and how... Also, how alive the world feels if you watch those movies. And if he brings that kind of sensibility into Falcon and Winter Soldier, we should be getting a lot of the same kind of fight choreography that we saw both in the John Wick films as well as in Winter Soldier, which has some of the best fight choreography in all of the MCU. So I'm excited for that. In film news, we got the very first trailer for the Lupin the Third uh, CGI film. I'm excited. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I was a huge Lupin the Third uh, fan back when I was a little kid. It was one of my first anime that I ever watched. And so this is really exciting. They're bringing in these characters. The flavor is still there. So if this does end up getting a U.S. release, I will definitely be tuning in for that. And even if it doesn't, I might seek out a sub uh, version for it. So I'll definitely be checking that out. In uh, DC news, we had some interesting uh, news as it pertains to the Birds of Prey film with, uh, as we documented, I want to say in the past couple episodes, uh, Birds of Prey, the first few uh, test screenings have been going out and to overwhelmingly positive reviews from all of those who have watched. However, there has been an interesting development in the case of the film's villain, which is Black Mask, played by Ewan McGregor. I was really excited by this casting. I think Black Mask is one of the most underutilized and underappreciated Batman villains. So I was really excited about this. This seems like they're going to be doing something different for him. So for those of you who don't want any spoilers for the film, uh, I would say jump ahead and maybe ah, five minutes, but it was revealed that this Black Mask is going to be uh, decidedly different than the typical Black Mask and that he is going to be uh, played pretty flamboyant and uh, homosexual as well. So they're turning him into an LGBTQ character, which totally fine not a problem with that um he also seems to be having a weird like flirtation with victor zaz which is uh, it's fine it's weird but it's fine and then um it seems that his whole deal the reason why he's going to be hunting hunting down cassandra kane um who is also one of the stars of the film is that she swallows a diamond which weird again but fine but apparently the reason that he wants this diamond so bad is because apparently the diamond contains um dick pics which is i don't know i don't know man um it's weird i i'm gonna of course i'm gonna see the movie i'm gonna withhold judgment until i actually see the film but um it's very very just left turn um veering widely off of what um 
the Black Mask character normally is. I'm all for reinventing characters, especially ones that aren't as well known as Black Mask is. So we'll see. But I just I think it's it's weird, and we're gonna have to get used to that for sure. Um, also in film news, uh, Power Rangers. You guys know, gals and gals know that the reboot of the Power Rangers film in 2017 was mixed reviews at best. Uh, well, the actor Dacre Montgomery, who also who starred in that as the Red Ranger and also stars as Billy in Stranger Things, uh, had an interview where someone brought it up, and apparently, a another another Power Rangers movie is coming down the line, but it is going to be another reboot. None of the uh, actors, as far as uh, Dacre Montgomery knows. Are being brought back for it and it looks like they are just rebooting the whole thing once again so um fine i guess we'll see what happens with that but it's it's whatever man and then finally big news i think the big film news of the week is that uh we have official confirmation that thor 4 is in the works and it will be both written and directed by taika watiti we kind of all thought that there was a pretty good chance, especially with how well he handled the character and how much the character went through across Infinity War and Endgame. But uh, getting an official confirmation is pretty exciting. And it does break the uh, traditional MCU trope of three and done, where we are finally getting a fourth solo uh hero movie in the franchise so i'm excited i love thor ragnarok it's one of my favorite uh mcu movies if i remember correctly it is in my top five so i i'm excited and taiko tidi has such a great uh voice for that character chris hemsworth really recontextualized what that character is across ragnarok infinity war and endgame so i'm excited to see where they take him next and where they take the story next i'm crossing my fingers for beta ray bill we will see what happens uh, moving on over to comics news we had a couple big announcements this week starting off with superman smashes the clan uh, this is going to be a three issue limited series written by uh gene yun uh, da, 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 da. I want to make sure I get his name right. I'm looking through this. Gene Loon Yang uh, is going to be writing it. He's uh, written the Big Blue Boy Scout before and also was uh, the writer for New Superman, which I think is a highly underappreciated book. Uh, and the art is going to be handled by an, an Asian art studio called Guri Huru. I know I said that wrong and I apologize. Um, but this is really exciting. Jean uh, Lun Yang has such a great voice for Clark. And this book, because it is being done by a uh, traditionally manga-inspired studio, is going to be using that kind of art style with this. And it's going to be tackling one of the most notorious and infamous Superman stories ever, that being uh, Superman versus the Fiery White Cross. So I'm excited about this. We have an official synopsis, which I'm going to read right now. The year is 1946, and the Lee family has moved from Metropolis's Chinatown to the center of the bustling city. While Dr. Lee is greeted warmly in his new position at the Metropolis Health Department, his two kids, Roberta and Tommy, are more excited about being closer to their famous hero, Superman. 
While Tommy adjusts to the fast pace of the city, Roberta feels out of place as she tries and fails to fit in with the neighborhood kids. As the Lees try to adjust to their new lives, an evil is stirring in Metropolis, the Ku Klux Klan. When the Lee family awakens one night to find a burning cross on their lawn, they consider leaving town, but the Daily Planet offers a reward for information on the KKK, and their top two reporters, Lois Lane and Clark Kent, dig into the story. When Tommy is kidnapped by the KKK, Superman leaps into action with help from Roberta. But Superman is still new to his powers. He hasn't even worked out how to fly yet, so he has to run across town. Will Superman and Roberta reach Tommy in time? Inspired by the 1940s Superman radio serial Clan of the Fiery Cross, Gene Loon Yang brings us his personal retelling of the adventures of the Lee family as they team up with Superman to smash the clan. So I'm really excited about this. Superman versus um, the KKK has always been a big uh, story for me. I've always loved that story, especially with all the stuff that went on behind the scenes as well. I hope they incorporate some of that. I think it'd be really cool. I would love to do an episode on that. So that might be something we could look forward to. But I just love that this is being done. They're basically going to be retelling the clan of the fiery cross storyline that was in the uh, radio serial as you heard in the synopsis and i love that story i love what it represents and i love that we're going to be seeing a younger less sure of himself superman who still isn't sure of his powers and he's using my favorite superman symbol so i'm really excited that is going to be coming out let me double check on this uh, da, 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 da. it's going to be coming out october 16th it's going to be three issues um 80 pages each, so it's going to be the uh, premium format edition. I am really, really excited for this. Next up on the comics front, uh, two more Black Label books were announced. And guess which characters they're focusing on? Batman. Well, at least one of them is. Uh, Lamire is going to be teaming up with longtime collaborator, collaborator Andre Sorrentino on Killer Smile. Um... Uh, it's another Batman, Joker, Harley Quinn story. It's whatever. The one I'm excited about is The Question, The Deaths of Vic Sage. Um, I love The Question as a character. I'm really excited about that. Uh, he he is doing this book with artist Dennis Cohen and Bill Sankiewicz. I know I said that wrong and I apologize. But um, I'm really excited about this. This is going to be a classic like noir detective story. Um, but with a bit of a twist. Uh, for some reason, Question wakes up and he realizes that he's been living and dying in Hub City, uh, seemingly trapped in a loop of reincarnation that spans from the Old West into the 1930s. So I love that. That sounds awesome. This is what I'm talking about when it comes to the Black Label uh, line where it should be giving a spotlight for characters who don't really get that kind of spotlight outside of the label. So I'm excited for this book. Um, in less exciting news, uh, Doomsday Clock has been delayed once again. Uh, Doomsday Clock issue number 11 has been delayed to August number August 28th. For reference, Doomsday Clock number 10 came out on May 29th. So that was two months ago, almost. And we are not going to get the 11th issue, the penultimate issue, until August 28th. We don't even have a release date for Doomsday Clock number 12. 
Um, this series was supposed to wrap up in November of 2018, so I'm really bummed about this, uh, but we're going to see what happens. I've been loving the book so far. Every single issue that's come out has been some of the best that I've ever seen. Uh, you heard multiple times I've referenced this as the best DC Comics, or the best DC comic pound-for-pound consistency of storytelling-wise that they've been putting out for the last two years. So I just hope that these delays mean that the book stays as strong as it has been. And then finally, uh, in more positive news, um, we have some new books that are being announced. It is the Tales from the Dark Multiverse. So this is going to be spinning out of Batman Who Laughs, Dark Knight's Metal like you do. And uh, these are going to be helmed by writers uh, James Tynan IV, Scott Snyder, and Kyle Higgins. Really excited about these. The first two issues have been announced, and the first issue is Tales from the Dark Multiverse Nightfall. So I'm really excited. It's basically going to be dealing with a world where um, the Nightfall storyline happened, but Bruce wasn't able to take the mantle back from Jean-Paul Valley. So I'm excited about that. And the second issue is Tales from the Dark Multiverse, The Death of Superman. So they're tackling some big, big stories, and they're going to be retelling those stories uh, with a twist and bringing out new stories from those seminal events. So I'm really excited about that. And then finally, in miscellaneous news, San Diego Comic-Con is this week. It is going to be chock full of news. Next week's episode is going to be news heavy, I can tell you. Lots of stuff going on. Uh, Marvel Studios, we're going to get some MCU stuff, lots of comics news, some TV news as well. Uh, DC Universe is going to have a big presence there with their streaming service. Uh, so I'm excited. It's going to be a lot of news coming out. I'm going to try and get a handle on all of it expect a giant size news uh edition next week but um that's gonna do it for the news here so we're gonna jump into the main course the entree of the episode if you will which is going to be a full-on review and kind of diving into what i love so much about spider-man ps4 i'm going to warn you spoilers big spoiler warning right here right now if you haven't played the game uh pause it here go play through it it demands and deserves your attention come back here and then we are going to talk about why i think the spider-man that is featured in this game is the definitive one true only spider-man So, I remember playing my very first Spider-Man game. It was Neversoft's Spider-Man for the PlayStation 1. It was the very first Spider-Man game I'd ever played, and I was hooked immediately. You got to swing around, uh, you got stealth missions, you got to face off against Spider-Man's greatest villains. It was a blast, and it the time, I mean, this was back when uh, PlayStation 1 was still, like, the king of gaming at the time. I thought it couldn't get any better than this. This is the quintessential Spider-Man game. This is the quintessential Spider-Man experience. Flash forward to today, and I feel the same way about a different game. This is a game that 
came out not on the PlayStation 1, but on the PlayStation 4. And unlike the Neversoft version, was an exclusive to the PlayStation console. This was a game that, like the Neversoft version, featured web swinging throughout New York, featured Spidey facing off against some of his greatest foes, featured stealth missions. This game was and is the definitive Spider-Man game for me. And that is, of course, Spider-Man PS4. This is the game that came out last year, as of the time of this recording, I guess more specifically, uh, fall of 2018. And it is just something that I... I can't believe got made. Um, I had been lamenting for years how I didn't have a Spider-Man game that I really wanted to play. Uh, the closest that I could get my hands on was the uh, Spider-Man Unlimited uh, runner game that was on uh, smartphones and stuff like that. It was basically just an app like those Endless Runners, Temple Run, um, Subway Surfer, those kind of things, but featured Spider-Man. You could unlock different costumes, uh, you could build up a team, you'd go on missions, but it was pretty much the only Spider-Man game that I had for a couple years, and I was really bummed about that because I really wanted a full Spider-Man game. It was cool to get like the, uh, the alternate costumes based off of movies and comics, but I really wanted a game where I could swing around New York. I really wanted a story-driven game. I really wanted something that I could really sink my teeth into. Um, you guys know that I'm a huge fan of RPGs, of you know, making my way, building up a character, uh, customizing that character however I can, and tackling a great story with awesome characters. And this game, Spider-Man PS4, uh, does all of that, scratches all those itches, uh, brings in a full cast of characters, brings in a living, breathing world with a story that I think is one of the best Spider-Man stories ever told. Is that hyperbole? Maybe. Are there other games that, you know, are closer to other people's vision of what Spider-Man is? Absolutely. Spider-Man is a subjective character for so many people, for so many reasons, but for me, for my money, this features the definitive Spider-Man. Um, I just, I love this game so much. It is my favorite Spider-Man game. Uh, we're going to be tackling some uh, points that I have just talking about basic reviews because I realized I never really got to do a full-on review for Spider-Man PS4. I did like bullet points in an episode right around the time that I finished it uh, before all the DLC came out, but I never really got to sink my teeth into it and tell you guys why I think this is the definitive Spider-Man and this is the definitive Spider-Man experience. Um, I'm also going to be talking about uh, things that I think make this game kind of stand above the rest. I'm going to be talking about those DLC chapters that came out after my initial review, and I'm also going to be talking about possibly some uh, sequel theories or some sequel pitches that I might have after playing through the game once again. Uh, recently, I have been playing through the New Game Plus on the ultimate difficulty, which uh, kicked my ass 
more than once, and I had a blast going through it again. Uh, going through, meeting all these characters, working through the story, uh, playing with some of the different costumes that I never really did on my first playthrough, and then going through those DLC, like really getting to see the extension of this universe and getting hints on what might happen in uh, potential sequels. I know this is definitely going to get a sequel, for sure. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But, um, yeah, it was just a blast going through this game again, and I wanted to make sure that I finished it all up uh, just in time to record this episode. And luckily I did. I got a full uh, second experience going through, playing through uh, Spider-Man PS4. I originally wasn't going to do all the uh, the citywide stuff. I was going to tackle just the... Um, the main story and the side missions and then just jump straight into the DLC but as I got through it I you know I got the bug the bug bit me or the spider bit me I guess and uh, I ended up completing the game 100% once again in the uh, new game plus mode because this game just makes you as I know is very uh, cliche at this point to say it makes you feel like spider-man it really does and um yeah, so that is just general thoughts, but I have to say that the game stands and will um, basically be um, made or broken by their Spider-Man. And I'm happy to say that this Spider-Man is the definitive Spider-Man for me, and that falls all upon Peter Parker. Uh, Peter Parker is uh, voiced by Yuri Lowenthal, who is a veteran uh, voice actor. He is somebody whose career I would aspire and do aspire to have one day. And he just brings such a new flavor to Spider-Man that I don't think we've really uh, heard before. He got his first kind of uh, cutting his teeth playing Spider-Man in that Spider-Man Unlimited Endless Runner game that I was telling you about. Uh, and so it was kind of a cool transition going from that game, playing that all the time, into going to this game and being able to hear that same voice and kind of carry across uh, obviously not the same character, but the same kind of uh, energy that he brings to the character. Uh, I'll jump right into it. This is the definitive Spider-Man for me. This Spider-Man, this Peter Parker, is uh, just graduated college. He is, I believe, 23 in this uh, in this specific game, and he is exactly where I picture my Spider-Man at. Um, I know recently there's been a big push for high school Spider-Man with the MCU, uh, Homecoming, Far From Home, all that stuff, and there are plenty, plenty of great stories to be told with high school Spider-Man just kind of figuring things out. But this Spider-Man uh, has been in the game for a while. I believe he says he's been Spider-Man for 15 years, not 15, wow, uh, for eight years, <laughs> having started at the age of 15, which makes him 23 in this game. Um, and he's he's got a handle on it. He knows what he's doing as Spider-Man. I have to make that distinction because knowing what he's doing as Peter Parker is a little harder. Uh, the opening of the game shows him having to decide between paying his rent and going to stop Kingpin. And of course, because of the nature of power and responsibility, he chooses to go after Penguin in one of the best opening prologue levels that I've ever played. And he's just... 
you know, he makes those decisions. And I love that those decisions also have consequences because not a few days later, he gets evicted from his apartment and he has to go through an entire uh, mission where he's trying to track down his stuff after it's been evicted and basically tossed in the trash. So um, I love that this Peter struggles. I love that this Peter um, really has quips a lot of the uh, criticisms, I think, of of some live-action Spider-Man and Spider-Men in the past have been that he doesn't quip enough and that his quips aren't, I guess, snappy enough or funny enough or unfunny enough, I guess, uh, depending on who you ask. And this Peter Parker really balances all of that out. Uh, we also get to play as Peter Parker outside of the Spider-Man outfit, normally just walking around Feast, but also in the DLC getting a little bit of uh, of Peter Parker time running around on the streets as well. And I like that we get to get those kind of moments to breathe, to talk to people who are uh, directly affecting some of Peter Parker's life getting to talk to Aunt May, getting to talk to Mary Jane, getting to talk to Miles Morales later on in the game. Uh, at this point, May is running the Feast uh, homeless shelter, and you get to walk through and talk to all of the uh, homeless people who are living in that shelter and who have built a, re a relationship with Peter. And I love that he's talking to these people. You meet one uh, pretty early on in the game named Gloria, and she is just... Oh, she's fantastic. You meet her as Spider-Man initially, saving her from a group of muggers, and afterwards you direct her towards Feast. And then eventually you run into her as Peter Parker, and you get to kind of watch her throughout the game start to acclimate to not being on her own, asking people for, for help. By the end of the game, she's uh, gotten a job at the Coffee Bean. She's... Uh, reintegrated herself into a community and it's really cool to get that kind of uh, character development but Peter goes through a lot of character development himself over the course of this game uh, by the time that this game has started he and Mary Jane have broken up and they've been broken up for I think at least six months and uh, Peter is working his way through that he's working his way through just graduating college and not really knowing exactly what to do with his life after that I can absolutely relate I know that feeling after I graduated college I was uh, lost for a little bit before finding my way and starting to make my way towards my goals and you see a Peter who is at his crossroads here in that same vein he is somebody who is uh, pretty sure of himself and what he can bring to the table, but he isn't sure of how to apply that to the greater world. He is, at this point, interning and helping out uh, one of his greatest mentors and one of his greatest inspirations, and he is trying to balance that out with, you know, being Spider-Man. And this game really, I think, perfectly adapts and shows the viewer, the audience, the player, what it's like to be Peter Parker, where it's like everything in his life seems to go wrong except when he's got the mask on. And even sometimes when that's on too, he 
seems to really uh, kind of be making things up as he goes, which is something that I've always loved about Spider-Man, the kind of improvisational nature of his character, how he kind of just flies into things and figures out how to handle situations as he goes. And I've always loved that. And that really lends itself to a video game where it drops you into a situation and it's like, okay, you've got gadgets, you've got your web powers, uh, figure out how to solve this problem. And I love that you are given the freedom for that and that Peter is given the freedom for that in this story. Uh, He also has to deal with, as previously stated, Mary Jane after running back into her, the two of them entering each other's lives once again. And uh, this is a very different uh, relationship than we normally see. This is a relationship where uh, Peter is still, you can tell he's still wildly in love with Mary Jane, and she's the same. Uh, She's a little bit better at hiding it than Peter is, though. And um, you see them being awkward. You see them not knowing how to talk to each other. You see them uh, accidentally referencing stuff from their previous relationship and how awkward that makes every conversation. Uh, The scene where he is texting her... uh, after having completed the, I want to say it was the uh, Grand Central Station mission, um, where he's just texting her, trying to uh, figure out where they stand and how texting doesn't really convey emotions. And it's, uh, I mean, everyone's been there. Literally everyone's been there. And uh, the fact that Peter is once again having to fly by the seat of his pants across this text conversation and failing is something I think we can all uh, really relate to as well. Uh, Peter tries his best to hold everything together and doesn't always succeed, which I like. Uh, case in point, the whole uh, getting evicted. He tried as long as he could to put it off, but eventually that happens. Uh, he tries to save um, Miles's dad on uh, a couple different occasions and unfortunately uh, that doesn't end up happening. I love the relationship between him and uh, Jeff and I really enjoyed the mission with them working together and the two of them really helping each other out. Uh, Peter is in I think the weirdest spot that I've really ever seen him. We've seen him through adversity before. We've seen him uh, in the comics, in the movies, in the cartoons. We've seen him face adversity, but we've never, I don't think, ever seen him uh, in adversity in a way that he is unable to figure out how he is supposed to fit into the world. We know that he's been Spider-Man for a good long while at this point. Eight years is a long time to be a superhero. Uh, We normally see guys like Batman, Superman, who have been heroes for, you know, 15, 20 years. Uh, We got to see a Peter Parker who had been at the game for... Uh, I think just about uh, just over 20 years in into the Spider-Verse and you see that the kind of toll that that takes on a person and Peter is really starting to feel it here he's really starting to feel just how hard it is to balance those lives and I love that I love that this character is dealing with this stuff and once again kind of making it up as he goes uh, I also love his relationship with Aunt May Aunt May is a firecracker and is a powerhouse in this story and um their relationship is just so loving and so pure 
the moment when he has to, uh, after he's been evicted, has to stay the night on her couch in her office at Feast. And he wakes up and she's, you know, left him an envelope with money to get him back on his feet. And he's like, you know, I can't take this. And she says, you can and you will. Just matter of fact, uh, Aunt May is an incredible character and it makes it all the more heartbreaking when uh, you have, when Peter has to make the final decision at the very end after, um, pretty much the day is saved for the most part but he has to make a choice because the devil's breath has infected most of the city including aunt may and you find out that even though we have the cure there's only one dose of the cure and either peter can use it to save may or he can give it to the uh the doctors and they'll be able to basically reverse engineer uh, multiple doses but that'll take hours which may doesn't have and you know the decision peter's gonna make you know the decision that peter has to make and that really he doesn't have any choice but to make but we see him struggle with it because we know it's not what he wants um it is a heartbreaking scene it is a heart breaking scene because he knows what the right decision is he knows what the responsibility is in the moment when he goes to see aunt may and i'm going to try not to get, you guys know i get emotional about some things but i'm going to try not to get emotional during this um when he goes to her and she reveals that she's always known that she's always known that he was spider-man and that she uh trusted him enough to go about his business and to do his spider-man thing um she asks him to take off his mask because she wants to see her nephew and um they have this moment who uh where you really get closure she tells him that even she knows the decision that he has to make and she knows what the right decision is and she basically tells him that it's okay um she basically tells him that she's okay with whatever happens and really giving peter that closure of being like it's okay i can go you can let me go and this is one of those things where um it's not just an emotional beat for peter but it's also a thematic choice as well because this is peter's choice um this is Peter's moment that he has to choose whether to hold on to his past on what the world has been for him and choosing between that or choosing between stepping into a new world that is his future. And Peter ultimately has to make the choice to let his past go. This is a thematic choice which is kind of featured throughout the game where he's trying to hold on to things that... Um, that he's comfortable with because once again he's in that crossroads of his life and he is trying to hold on to whatever is familiar whatever is nostalgic uh one beat of the game is him going through and collecting old mementos and it makes it a mission because peter has an inability to let go of his past um when he is texting uh, Mary Jane after they first run into each other again. He wants to meet with her at the restaurant that they always used to go to. And even MJ says, what, like the last six months never happened. Peter in this game has an inability to uh, let go of the past. He really wants to live in what's comfortable for him. Um, and his inability to adapt and his inability to uh, look forward is really what I think hurts him on 
multiple occasions throughout this game. Uh, he focuses so much on his friendship and his past mentorship with Otto Octavius that it blinds him to the fact that Otto is a terrible person. And I... I know that there's, uh, we, we have a section for Otto in a little bit, but this idea that Otto was manipulated by the, by the arms and by the inhibitor malfunctioning, I think is a false, uh, false narrative. And I think that Otto has always been this way. And he reveals that when he uh, reveals to Peter that he always knew. But once again, we're going to talk about him a little bit later. But Peter's inability to see how people change and see um, how the city changes around him is a driving force in this game and is something that he has to learn to deal with as he goes. And it's that moment where he has to decide whether to hold on to Aunt May, which represents his past, or the city, which represents his future, is really uh, is really heavy. Once again, I've been in that situation where you're in a comfortable space. You're in a place where you, um, you feel comfortable and you feel like you've gotten to a point where you are you know, at the top of where you always wanted to be. And you have to make the decision whether you want to stay there or jump into this great unknown where there is no guarantee of success. There's no guarantee of comfortability. But um, Peter ultimately chooses to rescue the city. He makes the responsible choice and thereby lets May go along with his past and is basically making the uh, step to go into the future it's the same thing with uh, mary jane he makes the choice to leave behind their past relationship and start brand new they even have the scene at the very end where uh mary jane reintroduces herself and i realize that it's more of a you know reveal that she got the uh the associate editor job but it's also i think a thematic thing where it's like they're starting over they're starting brand new it's a brand new day and i know spider-man fans that's really uh it's an icky thing to say and i apologize but um it really does feel like a brand new day where they're able to move forward with their lives and i resonate with that idea so much of him choosing to uh, jump into the great unknown and be the Spider-Man that he hopes that he can be rather than the Spider-Man that he's been in the past. So that is my gushing on Spider-Man, on Peter Parker, the man, the myth, the legend. Um, he goes through an incredibly personal journey across this narrative, and I absolutely love it. But the game is not just about Peter Parker. The game has so much more to offer and that includes uh his adventures as spider-man when he's going around uh fighting villains doing the quips um getting to web swing in this game is incredible we'll talk about the gameplay a little bit later but um this world is filled and populated with characters who really help bring the world to life one of which and i touched on her a little bit is mary jane watson uh this mary jane is vastly different from the mary jane that we've seen in previous iterations uh she is probably as close to an iris west or lois lane character archetype as we get for mary jane in that she is now a uh, a beat 
reporter for the Daily Bugle. She has essentially taken Peter's job. Um, and she is really coming into her own as a character, and a different character than most Mary Jane interpretations. Uh, classic Mary Jane is either a supermodel or an actress, never really uh, bouncing anywhere outside of those realms. Where this Mary Jane is much more contemplative. She's much more internal. She's much more um, capable, I think I could say that, than Mary Jane's in the past. Uh, the last couple of years with Mary Jane in the comics has really uh, tried their best to really distance herself from Peter and to make her a character outside of being Peter Parker's girlfriend. Uh, I think one of the most successful um, iterations of this was when she was essentially made secretary to Tony Stark and we got to see her build her way up as a character in her own right, which I really enjoyed. Um, but this Mary Jane feels like she could be in her own story. And that is why I think they give her so many uh, missions where you're playing as Mary Jane. There's even a mission in Grand Central Station where you are playing Mary Jane watching Spider-Man go to work around you, which I think is incredible. I love that sequence. Uh, the Grand Central Station is filled with the entire you know story mission involving Grand Central Station is one of my favorite missions in the game just because of how much it both celebrates and um, also evolves storylines and character beats from the past. The whole moment where he tries to stop the train with his webs and it not work I think is hilarious and a great callback to Spider-Man 2. But for me, uh, Mary Jane really becomes a more interesting character here. And maybe it's because I've always loved the Lois Lane character being a diehard Superman fan. But I also think that her relaxed and at the same time strained relationship with Peter really sells this character. Sells the idea that she could be on her own and she is okay being on her own. She's been okay being on her own for at least the last six months according to the game. So I really like the fact that she is a self-starter she is uh, self-reliant she keeps finding herself my f one of my favorite things about her is that uh, you'll call her as Peter and she'll be like hey can I call you back I'm busy doing something and then it flashes over to where she is and she's infiltrating a sable base or she's sneaking around um, Tombstone's garage like she is so self-sufficient in this game and really you find out that that's the reason that they broke up was because she wanted to be more self-sufficient and Peter once again could not get himself out of his headspace and let go of the idea that she always needed to be saved and maybe that was you know a fact that used to be true but nowadays she is just fine doing things by herself and peter once again struggles with that so i really um i really like her character here the idea that she is able to do things on her own uh running around in parts of the missions with her and a little like taser gun i think was hilarious uh, getting to tase sail guards as mary jane watson it's like what what more could you want from that <laughs> and i know that there was a lot of uh most of the criticisms for the game are centered on the stealth missions mostly involving mary jane but i really like them i love stealth missions just in general and being able to play as this character um who doesn't have spidey sense who doesn't have all the gadgets um really sells just how um how good peter has it 
it also really amps up the tension when you are playing as those characters because you know that in certain moments of the game Peter's not going to come save you because you're on your own you're not telling him where you are and you're going to have to figure your way out of this and I love that I love that aspect of the character and how she really kind of steps into her own and basically forces Peter to be okay with it um and I think it's a really good update of the character. It really is something that uh, needed to be done with the character, who at her worst is described as a scream queen who is always getting captured. So I really love the evolution of the Mary Jane character, and I am so excited that this version of the character is who uh, gets to almost steal the show at certain times. But the real, I think people who steal the show in this game on numerous occasions are the villains and we're going to talk about them here um first off got to talk about who i think are a bit sidelined in this game norman osborne and wilson fisk norman osborne has not yet become the green goblin more on that later um and wilson fisk is at the end of his tirade as the kingpin of crime uh the opening of the game shows you taking down kingpin once and for all um at least until the next game and I love this version of the character. This character seems like an elevated, um, I would say more simplified version of the Vincent D'Onofrio Kingpin, where he speaks very calmly. He only gets uh, irate and angry when Spider-Man directly gets involved in his affairs. And the, you know, the boss fight, serving as the very first boss fight in the game, between uh, Spider-Man and Kingpin is, I think, a great use of the character and the fact that he spends most of the game in prison but still operating all of his various hideouts and um, his own just army of uh, henchmen really sells just how far his reach is, and I really enjoyed that. As for Norman, Norman is mayor in this game, which I think is hilarious and really brings to mind the... Uh, Lex Luthor for president storylines, which I absolutely loved. But the difference between that and this is Norman isn't a supervillain yet. He's just a horrible person. Um, shown in how he treats Otto, how he covered up the Martin Lee incident, and really everything that um, is going to come out of the ending of this game, which again, we will get to. Um, I really liked how nuanced Norman Osborn's character was. You can tell that in certain respects, he really wants what's best for the city, i.e. with Peter, uh, with certain, you know, bringing in Sable, not just because that he can afford them and they're basically his own privatized army, but because he wants the city to uh, feel safe. Because when they feel safe, they adore him. And this is an Osborne who thrives off the city being in love with him. He loves being loved to his detriment. And that is a lot of what goes into the idea of him betraying Otto very early on in their careers. And I love that this is... I, I don't want to say, because we see it all the time nowadays, that he is a direct uh, Donald Trump equivalent, but I definitely think that there are aspects of that littered in this. Um, he is a former businessman who is super shady, um, horrible business practices, hor horrible moral practices, who is elected to office and uses his influence to, um, at times, deport people and put people in cages. So... Um, 
there are definitely, definitely some uh, some parallels drawn here, but I really love how nuanced his character is, and at the very end of the game, you do see that he loves Harry. I think this is the most... Um, I really think this is the most uh, human Osborn that we've seen. Uh, really, in any iteration of him that I've seen in the movies, comics, video games, cartoons, uh, Norman always keeps his son at arm's length, and this one really doesn't seem to be that way. This Norman loves his son and is willing to uh, make some really morally terrible choices to try and save the life of his only son, including using a highly experimental and highly dangerous chemical to try and save his son's life. Uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing where Norman goes in the next game. I think we get some clues uh, in the post credit scene, which again we will talk about, but I really... Um, Gosh, I really think that this is one of the most fascinating Norman Osborns we've ever gotten. And this is in a world where uh, incredible actor Willem Dafoe has played Norman Osborn to in that version of the Spider-Man universe to perfection, in a way. But this Norman Osborn, I think, stands far and above the other... Uh, Norman Osborns that we've seen. Going into more active villains, I think one of the main, if not like the second, the just under main villain of this game is Martin Lee, also known as the Negative Man. Uh, he's fascinating, and I think the uh, really the time that they take to flesh out this character, making him someone who is helping to run Feast alongside Aunt May, so you already have a uh, an emotional connection with him because you don't want to see him be as terrible as he is because you know that Aunt May looks up to him and you know that they work together on Feast. So uh, you really get the sense of trying to redeem Martin Lee and you f find out throughout the story that his negative side is, as negative sides do, corrupting him and forcing him to do things that the, uh, the normal Martin Lee may not initially think about doing. Uh, the... You moment where you sneak out of his office and you run right into him and there's a moment where martin lee knows that you now know who he is he doesn't know you're spider-man but he knows that you know who he is is incredibly tense um and really evoked for me the uh the vulture scene in homecoming where they're in the car and vulture figures out that peter parker is spider-man i love tense moments like that where you get to play off of so much subtext and uh, they did it to perfection here. I also really liked his power set. I loved how uh, he would imbue his demons with powers, but could also drain their life force to make him stronger. Um, some of his, his boss fights, I think, were the most inventive out of the game. And the visuals that he got to make always um, dealing within deep uh, Asian demonic... Uh, figureheads and imagery really sold how different this character is and I'm glad that he's getting to uh, enjoy a bit more uh, fame when it comes to that character really enjoyed it I love Martin Lee as a character and I really liked him as very closely the secondary villain of this game I also really liked that we got to see a full iteration of the Sinister Six here uh, including Martin Lee Doc Ock uh, Vulture, Electro, Rhino, and uh, Scorpion. It's not, I would say, the traditional uh, Sinister Six that most people from the comics are familiar with, but the fact that the films have been trying to put the Sinister Six together since probably, you know, 
almost 20 years now really uh, makes this team up so much sweeter. Having these characters there, Scorpion really gets, I think, the biggest makeover out of all of them, seeing as how uh, his stuff is less about trying to fatally kill Spider-Man and more about illusions. He kind of plays the... Uh, the Scarecrow to Spider-Man's Arkham Batman in that most of his levels involve uh, certain certain amount of hallucinations. Uh, the swinging through the city with the giant scorpion tails going after you was really cool imagery, and I really enjoyed that. Um, his hallucinations about... Um, about uh, Otto blaming Peter for his condition were really good as well and really helped push that narrative that Peter blames himself for Otto becoming who he is. And I really enjoyed all of the, uh, really the techniques, the redesign for Scorpion's armor. I also really liked uh, <laughs> Rhino, uh, who, I mean, it's a very simple character. It's very difficult to get wrong. However, the uh, the Amazing Spider-Man movies did that. So I guess um, it can be done. But here they play him to perfection. He's given a, uh, a Russian background instead of his more commonly... Uh, uh, commonly associated Brooklyn background, which I thought was an interesting uh, turn for the character. It didn't really shake up or uh, mess with the core of the character in any way, but I liked his uh, his little combo boss battle with Scorpion, even though, especially on the ultimate difficulty, is very difficult, <laughs> uh, which I get, you know, is supposed to be, but I, uh, I enjoyed the difficulty there and how inventive you had to get because you can't go hand-to-hand -hand with him. Uh, I also really enjoyed the Vulture here. The Vulture is much more uh, close closely uh, paralleled with the Michael Keaton version, where his Vulture wings are much more... Uh, Tech, technology based however this vulture is much closer to the comic uh, counterpart in that he is stupid old he is a very very old man and uh, makes Michael Keaton look like a, uh, a 25 year old college student so I was very impressed by this I really enjoyed this character um, I wish we'd gotten a little bit more with him but I really enjoyed what they did with him uh, Electro, I think, was a standout, and I think that partially has to do with him being voiced by Josh Keaton, who voiced uh, Peter Parker in the Spectacular Spider-Man show, which is, hands down, my favorite Spider-Man show of all time. Josh Keaton really is an incredible voice actor, and I would also love to work with him one day. But he really brings the uh, New York aspect to Electro, which we don't see, I think, often enough. Uh, he also is a younger version of this character in that he gets to play off Peter a little bit more. There's a moment during their boss fight where um, Spider-Man makes a Rocky reference, and I think it's hilarious. And uh, Vulture, of course, because he's a super old man, doesn't get it. But then uh, Electro follows it up with his own Rocky reference being go being like, Spider-Man, I must break you. And Peter goes, you got it! You got the reference! It's just, it's one of those things that really sells the idea that these guys have been facing off against each other for a long time, and they know each other that well. So I really enjoyed that. Uh, the boss bo the boss fight between uh, Spidey, Vulture, and Electro was also really cool being at the power plant, which I really enjoyed. Uh, finally, going into, uh, we talked about Martin Lee as the uh, the fifth man, but 
the one who steals the show, the one who is revealed to be the main antagonist for this game, is Otto Octavius, also known as Doc Ock. And this, just like Peter, I think, is the definitive Otto Octavius, because you get to see that descent into madness just like in Spider-Man 2. But unlike Spider-Man 2, you get to spend time with this Otto. You get to spend time with him failing. You get to spend time with him uh, revealing this degenerative disease that he has, which I think is going to play into sequels. Um, and you get to see him fall from grace. You get to see him trying his best, but really uh, falling into his more base uh, urges. And when he eventually does reveal himself, I'll... I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm going to start at the beginning of the game where uh, it's revealed that he is Peter's uh, father figure in this and that he is Peter's uh, mentor, he's Peter's boss, and they are trying to build up, you know, Octavius Industries and really trying to um, build something together, not just to, uh, you know, make money and stuff, but to change the world. And Otto, throughout the game, is slowly building what we come to know is the uh the the octopus arms his whole persona but for me at least the, it really didn't click for me until the moment where he steps out in the green jumpsuit which he uh reveals is a welder's uh jumpsuit and i'm like oh no no Otto, no and you really get invested in Otto as a character uh the last time that that happened for me was at least in video game form, was uh, playing through the first season of the Telltale Batman game, where you get so invested in Bruce and Harvey Dent's uh, friendship that you try everything that you can to stop Harvey from becoming Two-Face. And here it's the exact same thing. You know what's going to happen. And I think the... Uh, Insomniac, who developed the game, knew that everyone who was a fan in any regards of Spider-Man would know, oh, please, you know, it's just a matter of time before he becomes, you know, Dr. Octopus, when, okay, fine, but I'm going to make you care about Otto becoming, Oct you know, Doc Ock, and I'm going to make you not want Otto Octavius to become Doc Ock, and it works. You get so invested in this character that you don't want him to become Dr. Octopus, and you see how he got to this point. You see the jealousy. You see the failure. You see all of the stuff that goes into him becoming this character. When he builds the arms, it's a triumphant moment at first. When he gets the first two arms and he's like, this is going to do so much for helping people to... Um, move past the failures of the body and be able to live not just normal lives but elevated lives and when you know the full arms come out all four you know it's just a matter of time and it's sad it's incredibly sad and the moment that he reveals to peter that he always knew there's a moment you know in the final battle where peter is you know trying to hide his face and octopus just goes parker and peter turns to look at him and asks him you knew and and I 
put this out on uh, Twitter and everything too. It kills me every time that exchange where uh, Peter first says, you knew, like in disbelief. And then Doc Ock says, you know, basically, you know, I told you to stay out of my way. I told you not to do this. And Peter just gets so welled up with anger and fury, realizing that Otto has known for quite some time and that he allowed Peter to go through all this hardship and allowed all of these terrible things to happen, knowing that Peter was doing his best to try and save him. And it's just incredible, and it all culminates in that final battle on the side of the Oscorp building. It is emotional, it is um, climactic, it is fantastic. And the moment when uh, Peter's finally able to defeat him, you know, takes off the hip, or the, uh, basically makes Otto's arms useless to him. Otto's laying there, unable to move, and Peter just goes off on him, just telling him how, you know, you were everything I wanted to be, and you threw it all away, and in one of, I think, the most heartbreaking moments, um, Otto gives him the with great power comes great responsibility talk. And that is such a fantastic perversion of Uncle Ben giving him that talk that I just can't get over how amazing it is. Except he twists it and he says, with great power, we have great power. We have a responsibility to use that power to rule over people. To rule over the lesser man because he doesn't understand how great our power is and i absolutely love that and once again peter just you know rages against it saying he's wrong but you can tell that there's doubt you can tell that this man who he has devoted years of his life to uh following and assisting really um has broken him and once again feeding into the idea that peter is unable to um walk away from his past is just trying throughout this entire game to reclaim who Otto used to be without being able to see him as he is. And when he finally makes the choice to not help Otto and walks away from him, once again he's stepping into the uh, stepping into the world as it is, not how he wanted it to be. So I love that. I love that um, Otto is really given the spotlight because I think... And this may be a hot take. People may disagree. I think Otto Octavius is Peter Parker's greatest adversary. And he's his greatest enemy because he is the perversion of everything that Peter stands for. So those are the villains for this game. They are absolutely amazing. I'm going to talk briefly about uh, the gameplay and the world itself. Because you get the entirety of the island of Manhattan to play with. All the different boroughs and districts, Chinatown, Financial District, Harlem, you get to you know run through. You even get to run through Hell's Kitchen, and you get landmarks throughout the entire island, and they're fantastic to discover and go through. You get uh, Nelson and Murdoch, Attorneys at Law, you get Alias Investigations, Fogwell's Gym, all of this stuff that if you are fans of daredevil or of any of the netflix shows you recognize there's rand corporation there's um i was looking for it they didn't have it but i was looking for 
a, uh, a barber shop in uh, Harlem or some place for them to be working uh, Heroes for Hire out of. But you also get teases for the greater Marvel Universe as well. You get the Sanctum Sanctorum. You get to see the Avengers Tower. You get to see the Wakandan Embassy. So there is a greater world. Spidey lives in a greater Marvel world. He does reference that the Avengers are, poss- are over on the West Coast right now, which does feed into uh, the... Avengers project that Square Enix and Crystal Dynamics are working on, um, possibly linking them together. Uh, We do find out uh, in our interactions with Taskmaster in this game, who also uh, is just played to perfection here, that he just ran into the Avengers in uh, or on the West Coast, uh, which does once again feed into the San Francisco trailer for the Avengers project. So there is a lot that could be. opened up for sequels and stuff but i once again it makes it feel like the world is alive and it makes it feel like you are inhabiting this world that's living and breathing Uh, and part of that is through the gameplay as well web swinging has never been smoother i think um a lot of parallels have been uh drawn to spider-man 2 and web of shadows which um I've gone back, and yes, they were amazing for their time, but I think personally, Spider-Man PS4 is a better game. And I think the web-swinging mechanics here are, if not comparable, then better. Personally. I think that you really get a sense for momentum, you get a sense for weight, and I love that your webs actually attach to the stuff around you. So it's a great use of the web swinging. Um, We also get a lot of gadgets in this game, which brings to mind a lot of parallels with the Arkham games, which the combat definitely uh, takes from as well. But I liked them. I liked getting to use web gadgets, uh, improvising uses for them on the fly. I will say, uh, we'll talk about the DLC a little bit later, but one of the things I actually liked about the screwball challenges in the DLC were the ga- were the gadget challenges, which uh, kind of opened up the door to using certain uh, gadgets differently. Like, I had no idea that you could chain the web bomb into using the uh, concussive blast to not just uh, web up a group of people, but then just shoot them backwards straight into a wall without having to individually web throw them into a wall, which would give them time to get out of your web. Loved it. Wish I'd discovered it sooner, but I really enjoyed that here. Um, Also, just being able to... I love the fast travel, first of all. Love the fast travel as well. But web-swinging through the entire city was just beautiful. I will say I would like, in uh, potential sequels, more... um, unique boss fights. I really loved the boss fights here, but at a certain point, uh, some of them were a bit repetitive, so I would like more unique boss fights. But overall, I love the gameplay here. It really is smooth. It is, I will say, if you haven't played the game yet, first of all, I'm so sorry for all of the spoilers that you've now encountered. I did give you a spoiler warning, but If you haven't played this game yet, do not come into it thinking that you can play it like Arkham, any of the Arkham games. I thought that, and I died very quickly. Um, Forcing, you know, 
forcing players to have to get their enemies airborne to be able to be the most effective I think was really cool and a great use of Spidey's actual move set. So I really enjoyed that aspect of it. But overall, gameplay is super smooth. I love this game. What I also love is that uh, all of the, not just in-world, but in-narrative um, updating. They were modernizing classic tropes, such as J. Jonah Jameson. Uh, J. Jonah Jameson in this uh, particular story is not the editor of the Daily Bugle anymore. Uh, Robbie Robinson has stepped into that role, as we all knew he eventually would. But uh, J.J. is very close to how he is in uh, the mid credit scene spoilers for uh, Spider-Man Far From Home. And that he is a podcaster and a basically like a uh, alternative news person where he is basically reporting on things. And of course, it's his, its own spin. He's got a radio show. Um, it's basically the evolution of the character. And it makes sense for that character because at a certain point, his hatred of Spider-Man is not going to be seen as impartial news anymore. So now he doesn't have to be an editor for this giant conglomerate of a news organization he gets to just spout off his opinion which is classic jj i loved how he would spin certain things redirecting the heroic things that peter peter would do as spider-man and making the point that well it's just it's spider-man's fault because all this stuff wouldn't be happening if spider-man wasn't there in the first place so i really liked it um he's probably if i had to rank them he's probably my second favorite probably my second favorite iteration of the character behind uh of course jk simmons so i really enjoyed uh jonah also uh the gadgets we've seen different uh iterations of web shooting in previous uh forms of media for spider-man but i really liked how inventive they got with the gadgets here they also updated his relationship with the police which i think is really really cool and includes one of the best characters in the game which is captain yuri watanabe uh yuri has always been a really good character in the comics i've never personally been incredibly invested in her as a character but that changes in this game because she becomes essentially your commissioner gordon and the two of them have an uneasy working relationship uh, it's very much uh, good cop, wacky cop here where Yuri basically just puts up with Spider-Man because he uh, produces results. But his uh, jokes and his overall uh, laid back personality really kind of rubs her the, the wrong way. And she's this, you know, this gritty cop who has been on the force for a while and, you know, has a, is trying to beat a smoking habit. And it's very um, old school uh, buddy cop uh dynamics between the two which i loved and i really enjoyed getting to uh watch that shell kind of melt away as the game progresses starting off with uh him being super into this spider cop personality that yuri absolutely cannot stand and by the end of the game uh she says something along the lines of this isn't a job for spider-man this is a job for spider cop and you see that she's finally warmed up to him, and I love that. Um, and I guess that really uh, leans into the DLC chapters, which do play a very heavy hand in evolving this story and getting you uh, some idea of what the sequels are, 
are going to be about. What I loved specifically about this, the whole uh, DLC pack is basically called The City That Never Sleeps. And first of all, I love that it's a New York reference. But also, all three uh, chapters are very uh, mob-based, and I love street-level stories like this. I love stories of Spider-Man against the mob. Those are some of my favorite Spider-Man stories. Those are really some of my favorite superhero stories of street-level characters dealing with uh, mob and mafia uh, characters. This uh, whole pack, this whole... Uh, all the DLC is really kind of focused on Hammerhead as the main villain, though does feature all new uh, characters, some returning characters as well, such as a bigger focus on Black Cat, who is fantastic in the very first chapter and in a little uh, partial scene in the third chapter. First chapter is called The Heist, focuses on uh, Black Cat returning to the city and basically trying to... Um, collect all of the mafia family keys so that she can basically rescue her son which we find out is an imaginary son um, it does give some great moments for Peter because he doesn't know if this is his kid and he recognizes that there's a possibility that it could be and also uh, features some really awkward moments with uh, MJ which I loved um, the relationship between uh, Black Cat and Spider-Man is also really cool. It's not exactly what uh, the relationship is between Catwoman and Batman, because ultimately, because of how different they are, they're very wrong for each other, Peter and uh, Felicia are, but I love their dynamic. and after she kind of betrays you at the end and then seemingly dies in an explosion at the end of the chapter in a fantastic cliffhanger, uh, it really recontextualizes the whole thing. The second uh, chapter, which is entitled Turf Wars, has probably my favorite opening to a Spider-Man story ever, uh, with Spidey working with the cops to basically raid Hammerhead's uh, main base, and I love the opening of that. I've actually put up on uh, Twitter as well that it is my personal like how I would start a Spider-Man film and just the dynamics the quips the uh, interpersonal relationships I really really enjoyed uh, we also get to see kind of the downfall of Yuri Watanabe in this specific uh, chapter as well where she um, by the end very nearly kills Hammerhead and is essentially fired from the police force so Really great stuff, really gripping stuff. We are also getting uh, certain stuff about how Yuri has been essentially hunting Hammerhead for a very long time for how he ruined her life and the life of her father. And then in the final chapter called uh, Silver Lining, we get to see the return of Silver Sable and how she deals with all the mob stuff. And we get to see uh, Yuri basically leave the police life behind and decide to become the Wraith which I think is amazing, and we're definitely going to get some Wraith stuff in the sequel. So overall, really enjoyed it. I think I would have preferred for Hammerhead not to have become, you know, a cyborg essentially, and for him to stay, you know, a mob boss in the vein of Kingpin. But that's just a personal uh, opinion. I like how they uh, handled the Project Olympus stuff and really brought forward a character who, like most characters in the... Uh, spidey mythos sometimes really need an update so i overall really enjoyed the dlc and overall it was a great way to end the game specifically with uh the final scene being peter finally 
beginning to train Miles in how to be Spider-Man. So that is how the game ends. Uh, we do get two post-credit sequences um, from the main game, the first one being a mid-credit sequence, which uh, has Miles revealing to Peter that he was bit by a spider, and I love how this scene works because Miles is trying to tell Peter... Um, you know, all this stuff, like how his body's changing, and the whole Miles and Peter relationship is fantastic in this. I didn't, I haven't talked about Miles yet, and I feel bad, but um, he isn't a huge uh, player in this game. I would say he's probably one uh, notch below Mary Jane, but he goes through his father dying, um, befriending Spider-Man, being brought onto the Spider-Man team, and during the course of the game, he gets bit by another radioactive spider. And by the end of the game, during this mid-credit sequence, he tells Peter, like, hey, my body's been going through changes. And Peter is trying to be, like, the big brother, like, okay, wow, well, um, you know, things are going to happen with your body. And, you know, it's puberty, basically giving him the, uh, the puberty talk. And Miles is like, no, no, that is, not, that is not what I'm talking about. And then he just jumps on the ceiling and, you know, sticks to the ceiling. He's like, it's pretty weird, right? And Peter is just so overwhelmed. You can tell because he's so uh, he's so happy that he's not alone anymore. And once again, once again, going back to the idea of Peter um, at a, being at a crossroads in his life, he chooses to become a mentor. And he hops up on the ceiling with Miles and goes, yeah, it's not that weird. And so we get to see him embrace this new role that is going to carry into the sequel. And then in the post credit sequence, we see that Norman Osborn is walking into his penthouse, and his penthouse is a little like secret lab that we got to infiltrate earlier in the game as Mary Jane Watson. And there's this big metal container near the middle of the lab. And I remember the first time playing through it, I was like, something's in there. I don't know what it is, but something's in there, but it never references it in that specific mission. And I was like, okay, maybe I was wrong. But then we come back to it, in this post credit scene and it opens up and it reveals harry who has been quote unquote on a trip to europe but we find out over the course of the game he has been struck with the same uh, degenerative disease that his mom had and has been dying from of it from it and so um norman and harry concocted this whole going to europe trip to hide that harry is going to be undergoing a procedure to hopefully uh, cure his disease and we find out that the procedure or whatever it is is the symbiote because we see you know the whole metal casing goes around and we see Harry just floating unconscious in this uh, big ass glass tube and he's surrounded by this uh, green liquid and surrounding and attached to him is this like black tar which Norman goes up and rests his hand on, and the light from the green uh, liquid reflects on his face, teasing Green Goblin. But also, the green or the black tar moves forward and just attaches to the glass opposite where his hand is. So that's the symbiote. We're getting symbiote next game, and that leads me to my sequel pitches. I'm not going to go super in depth with them because I don't have them really uh, in mind. But first of all, I just, I love the idea that we're going to be getting, you know, some form of the symbiote storyline because the black suit, I think, is probably the biggest omission in this game for a lot of people when it comes to alternate costumes. We got over 40 alternate costumes and 
the black suit was the one that was probably the most requested alongside the Raimi suit. But um, now we know that they're that they have a plan for it, and that brings me to my impromptu ranking of every single Spider-Man costume in this game. I bet you didn't think we were going to go here, but we are. So here we go. Number 42, Cyborg Spider-Man. Number 41, Spirit Spider. Number 40, the Fear Itself suit. Number 39, the Velocity suit. Number 38, the Electroproof suit. Number 37, the 2099 White suit. Number 36, the ESU suit. Number 35, the Negative Zone suit. Number 34, the Undies suit. Number 33, the MCU Iron Spider suit. Number 32, the Spider-Clan suit, also known as the Manga suit. Number 31, the wrestler suit. Number 30, Spider-Punk. Number 29, the bombastic bagman. Number 28, the resilient suit. Number 27, the comic version of the Iron Spider suit. Number 26, Spider-UK. Number 25, Future Foundation. Number 24, Secret War. Number 23, Spider-Armor Mark II. Number 22, the Kane Scarlet Spider costume. Number 21, Spider Armor Mark III. Number 20, Homecoming suit. Number 19, the Dark suit. Number 18, the 2099 Black suit. Number 17, the Homemade suit. Number 16, the Anti-Ox suit. Number 15, the Classic suit Damage. Number 14, Spider Armor Mark IV. Number 13, the Aaron Aikman armor. Number 12, the Raimi suit. Number 11, the Stealth suit from Far From Home. Number 10, the Vintage Comic Book suit. Number 9, the Noir suit. Number 8, Spider Armor Mark 1. Number 7, Big Time Suit. Number 6, The Last Stand Suit. Number 5, The Advanced Suit. Number 4, The Spider-Verse Suit. Number 3, The Original Scarlet Spider Suit. Number 2, The Upgraded Suit from Far From Home. And number 1, The Classic Suit Repaired. Um, it was very difficult to rank uh, the Far From Home and Classic Suits because I loved both of them. Um, they're both incredibly amazing and... I went back and forth on that probably five or six times because I think the Far From Home upgraded suit might be my favorite Spider-Man live-action suit that we've ever had. And I really... Ah, it was tough. But there's a reason that the classic design of Spider-Man has endured so much and it is just made to perfection in this game. So, um, yeah, that's my uh, rankings of all... 42 Spider-Man suits. Uh, once again, moving on. So, uh, sequel pitches. Sequel pitches, I have just, again, basic, not super in-depth, but I do have a couple ideas. First of all, for Spider-Man 2, uh, the absence of Yuri moving to uh, her Wraith persona would leave a an uncertain uh, NYPD in which the uh, Captain Hood would be taken up by a certain George Stacy. Uh, in this same vein, Gwen Stacy would make her appearance, her debut in the game. Uh, Brian Intahar, as well as the Insomniac team, have said that Gwen Stacy is somewhere out in the world, and we don't have a Norman Osborn Green Goblin yet, so she's there. Uh, she's going to be introduced as a classmate of Miles, and the story, the kind of love story in the game, will be on Miles and Gwen. We're going to see dual uh, stories here from both Peter's and Miles' perspective, where the uh, main villain of each story for Peter would be Harry Osborn and the symbiote including a sequence where the symbiote would leave uh, Harry and become attached to Spider-Man where the uh, Miles main villain would be the Green Goblin which uh, we got hints of in the first game with the glider the mask the pumpkin bombs um, and would basically climax on the uh, 
Queensboro Bridge, where, of course, um, after finding out who Miles is, Norman Osborn would chuck Gwen Stacy off the bridge, death of Gwen Stacy, just with Miles, um, and that would be his story. Peter would be um, mainly focused on the Harry Osborn story, continuing the narrative of him trying to uh, hold on to some of his past with Harry, trying to redeem him, um, ending up with either Harry or if they wanted to introduce Eddie Brock across the story, the uh, story would, of course, culminate with the final battle being against Venom. Um, I would also have Wraith be one of the um, side missions, along with possibly hints towards Kraven the Hunter. I'd want to wait for that, um, but some returning villains for sure. And then um, the post I would have the post credit scene be uh, Spider-Man, you know, basically the game is Peter Parker and Miles both being Spider-Man and becoming comfortable with it. I would put the game probably, I would say maybe a year or two years post uh, the ending of um, Silver Lining, the DLC in Spider-Man. Um, so that, that gives time for uh, Miles to really become comfortable with the role, but he's still unsure, and we're still kind of dealing with the ramifications of the first game. But the post credit scene would be Peter going to visit a dying Otto Octavius, who, as we saw from the end of the first game, his body is failing him completely, and his body, his body is shutting itself down, and he will be dead soon. So the final uh, post credit scene would be Peter going to see Otto, door would shut. And then here's how I would open up uh, the, f the third game, Spider-Man 3, whatever they want to call it. Uh, the prologue would be uh, Spider-Man just doing a Spider-Man thing, but you would see during cutscenes that he would be a bit more vicious, he'd be a bit more violent, and at a certain point there is a, uh, a tussle with... I would probably, because in the second game, instead of focusing on Screwball again, I would focus on the Jester. Or the trickster? Jokester? Whichever one that pals around with uh, Screwball in the comics, he would be kind of taking up as a rabid fan of Screwballs in the first game, or in the second game. And then in this one, he goes up against both of them in this prologue, and he just completely kicks the shit out of them to the point that Miles shows up and he's like, What is wrong with you? What is going on? Blah, blah, blah. And then um, Peter reveals himself to kicked Miles' ass and then reveals that he is not Peter Parker. He is actually Otto Octavius. So we would be doing the Superior Spider-Man story. Uh, it would be revealed that in Peter's visit to Otto Octavius, he um, they do the whole mind swap and now Peter is trapped in Otto's dying body. Um, and you would basically take the uh, perspective of Miles for most of the game going up against Peter, uh, either ending with Otto being redeemed and becoming Superior Spider-Man, or um, somehow the mind's getting switched back. Either way, Miles would step into his role as the main Spider-Man for that series. So those are my pitches. Um, I'd also bring in Kraven for the third game, make him kind of the, almost the Martin Lee role. But really, once again, I love this game. Um, I just obviously I did because I talked for over an hour about this game, but I just, I love this game so much. So uh, let me know what you thought of Spider-Man PS4, where it kind of ranks for you in Spider-Man games, uh, and where this Peter Parker ranks for you in the grand scheme of Peter Parker's. Like I said, he's my definitive Spider-Man. Um, 
I think Jake Johnson's older Spider-Man is probably still my favorite Peter Parker, but for me, this version is the definitive version of that character. So, um, yeah, feel free to let me know what you thought of all of this, all of the stuff that we discussed uh, on either of our social medias, on Instagram or Twitter, at Pod. that's at Pod, or through email, because I'm an old man, I still read emails, to geeksplained at gmail.com. I'm always willing to talk about this. I absolutely loved this game, and I cannot wait to see where they go next in the Spider-Man Insomniac saga. And of course, that beautifully haunting melody can only mean one thing. It is now time for the weekly review. This is the segment of our show where I review something weekly. And right now, we are waist deep in the swamp of DC's Swamp Thing. This is the live action Swamp Thing TV show from the DC Universe streaming service and app. And this week, we are reviewing episode number seven, titled Brilliant Disguise. Um, this continues on from the uh, kind of cliffhanger of last week's episode where uh, the green is now kind of communicating through Swamp Thing and released a uh, kind of a flower that released like hallucinogenic spores that brought back our boy Andy Bean. Um, what I love about this episode is you really get to see uh, Alec and Abby just being together again the just chemistry between those two actors is so good and getting to see them kind of reunite in a way was really really cool and really got me to kind of overlook the shortcomings of abby in the last few episodes she's kind of been pushed to the back of the line in the uh, in the pecking order when it comes to characters here so i'm glad that this was very uh, abby focused for the most part uh, specifically, Abby versus the Rot. Uh, they went in search of the Rot, and she was infected by it. So I was... Uh I didn't know what was going to happen, and I was really hoping that something to kind of push her narrative forward was going to come out of her... Uh, basically her encounter with how terrible the rot is. Meanwhile, this was also a very Maria Sunderland-heavy episode, showing first that she is working with Woodrue to kind of get the support from the Conclave. Um, meanwhile, uh, Lucilia, uh, Lucilia Cable, the Sheriff Cable, uh, is on the hunt with Avery to try and hunt down uh, Alec after it's revealed that he is alive in quotation marks and it kind of was foreshadowed that uh, Lucilia was going to try and kill Avery but when he tries to kill her in the middle of the swamp it kind of took me by surprise because she seemed very uh, surprised by him turning on her but then Matt showed up and we you know revealed that this was the plan the whole time and they were going to kill uh, Avery with the two of them and so during this kind of exchange, it is revealed that uh, Avery Sunderland might be Matt's dad too. So um, I have questions when it comes to that. I don't think it's true, but um, either way, uh, 
this ends up with Matt being stabbed and Avery getting shot not once but twice uh, before he falls into the swamp below and they presume him to be dead. Uh, meanwhile, the Conclave is referenced once again with the debut of uh, Nathan Ellery, Mr. E, from the comics. In the comics, he was the man who kind of orchestrated the death of Alec Holland and, unbeknownst to him, uh, the birth of Swamp Thing. So it was interesting bringing that character in. Uh, they also referenced something called Mod 4, which I hope we get more info on in uh, upcoming episodes. But I liked that they were basically trying to get funding from the conclave and eventually with the findings from woodrue and uh, certain special pecan pie they were able to get proper funding from the conclave um, following this uh, a stabbed matt and lucilia show up at maria's door and we find out that they've been working together too scheming to get avery off the board so that Maria could take control of all of his holdings. Um, I don't exactly know why they're doing this or why Maria's doing this specifically, when this started or how they got together, but I'm hoping that they uh, expand and kind of explain it next episode. And then finally, um, Abby left. Like, I was surprised. I was really hoping that... Uh, this whole brush with the rot was going to be able to kind of push her forward and get that fire under her again that she had in the first couple episodes. But following uh, Swamp Thing basically curing her of the rot, Alec just like sends her away and she's just like, okay, I guess I'm going back to Atlanta. So she leaves. I'm really hoping that this isn't the last we see of Abby, but... Um, I was really kind of taken back and disappointed by that development. So, um, yeah, and then the very last scene that we see in uh, in the episode is Avery dragging his body out of the swamp. And just like with Alex, something's changed in him. And now I'm starting to doubt that Woodrue will become the Floronic Man because I'm now thinking that Avery is going to become the Floronic Man with, you know, how similar... Uh, he was, or his situation now is to where Alec was when he was shot. Um, I think it's not a coincidence, and it's not uh, a mistake that they were both shot, tossed into the uh, swamp below, and then climbed their way out, changed somehow. So, um, yeah, so lots of questions. I was kind of uh, hoping for more Dan Cassidy, but I guess since he got the spotlight last episode, we got to give everybody else the uh, spotlight here. So let me know what you thought of this week's episode. Let me know if you've been sticking with it. Uh, Young Justice is also on DC Universe now, so we've been getting double helpings of good content from the show. We are winding down. We've only got three episodes left. Episode 8 debuts this Friday. So uh, let me know what you thought of the episode. Let me know what you thought of the show so far. And we will uh, tune back in next week for episode 8. But for now, let's kick it on over to this week's Comics Countdown. <laughs> 
Welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown. This is the segment of our show where I tell you the comics that I think you should be picking up, whether it's at your local comic book shop, on Comixology, or however you get your comics. These are the ones I think you should definitely take a look at. We're going to be giving you each book's title, the creative team behind each book, as well as a brief synopsis of each book as well. And of course, each synopsis will be accompanied by my synopsis voices. If you have a synopsis voice you think I should try out, feel free to request that on our social media on Instagram or Twitter at GeekSplainedPod. That's at GeekSplainedPod. Or through email because I'm an old man and I still read emails to GeekSplained at gmail.com. We've got five books for you this week. A little lighter than uh, the past couple weeks, especially last week was uh, was very heavy. But these books are all quality and I'm really, really excited to talk about them. So let's get started. First of all, we have Superior Spider-Man number nine, written by Christos Gage with art by Mike Hawthorne. This book has just been fantastic. I was talking to somebody... Um, just today, actually, at one of the comic book shops in my area, just talking about how different this feels from the initial Superior Spider-Man run. This book definitely feels more hopeful, I think, and we are definitely seeing a different Otto Octavius than we saw in the previous book, and I like that. Uh, Christos Gage, I think, has as good, if not better, a voice for uh, the Superior Spider-Man than Dan Slott did, and I think he is a welcome successor for this book, and especially after the past couple issues where he's been teaming up with the West Coast Avengers, I'm really excited to see where his specific narrative gets pushed forward next. So let's jump into the synopsis here. After saving the citizens of San Francisco from the worst of the War of the Realms, the superior Spider-Man is the toast of the town, the key to the city, a ticker tape parade, adoration of the masses. That should make him feel good, right? Whatever he's feeling, he should treasure it because someone very dangerous is coming for him. So that's ominous, and the cover reveals that that someone might just be Norman Osborn. So we haven't seen Norman Osborn in quite some time. I'm excited to see how uh, Otto is going to deal with this. So really, really excited. Definitely tune in if you haven't been picking this up book. Now is a great time to jump on. Another book that I think is definitely worth jumping on right now is Jimmy Olsen number 1 of 12, written by Matt Fraction with art by Steve Lieber. I'm really excited about this book. More excited than I probably should be, but I love Matt Fraction's writing. He is fantastic. He penned two of my favorite Marvel books, that being Immortal Iron Fist and Hawkeye. And I am really excited because he does so well with street-level characters, especially kind of related to how they look at big events. So bringing in him on Jimmy Olsen, the perennial street-level character, is just fantastic. And I also really enjoy Steve Lieber's art. They are going to work really well together. So let's jump into the synopsis here. Jimmy Olsen must die. Wait. We're getting ahead of ourselves. Jimmy Olsen lives. Superman's best friend and Daily Planet photographer Jimmy Olsen tours the bizarre underbelly of the DC Universe in this new miniseries featuring death, destruction, giant turtles, and more. It's a century-spanning whirlwind of weird that starts in Metropolis and ends in Gotham City. And then we kill Jimmy. 
So I'm really excited. This is going to be fun. This is going to be everything that I think a Jimmy Olsen book should be. Um, and it has been in the past anytime there's been a Jimmy Olsen book. So I, I love stories like this. I'm really excited about it. And I think he should definitely be picking this up. Next up, we have Invaders, number seven. So this is continuing on. I'm so happy. I'm so excited about that. Uh, written by Chip Zdarsky with art by Carlos Magno and Butch Geese. I know I said that wrong and I apologize. I'm really excited to see where the next step is. The last issue closed out the Mad King storyline and we are going to be pushing forward into more um, tricky territory. So um, let's jump into the synopsis. Dead in the water, the world is forever changed. The invaders are shattered and Namor is the world's greatest threat. So I'm really excited about this, uh, dealing with the aftermath of Namor just completely um, drowning a city is uh it's heavy it's really heavy the cover also shows iron man facing off with a winter soldier uh, we know from the mcu that they've had big issues i'm not sure exactly how that's going to tie into this but i trust chip zadarsky with my life so i'm really excited for this book next up we have batman number 75 um this is uh this is big this is the beginning of city of bane we are heading into the twilight of the tom king batman run and this is going to kick off the final act of his run at least until the Batcat book kicks off uh next year so i'm really excited about this of course written by tom king with art by both mikhail janine and tony s daniel let's jump into the heavy synopsis City of Bane begins. Bane's minions have moved into Gotham City, taken control and are ruling with an iron fist, including rounding up any villain who refuses to sign onto Bane's program, and Batman is nowhere to be found. At least, not the Batman anyone knows. It's like someone has replaced the real Gotham City with a twisted funhouse mirror version of it. Meanwhile, the real Bruce Wayne is on a spiritual quest to regain his fighting spirit after his showdown with his father in the desert. Can the people of Gotham hold on until their protector is strong enough to come to their rescue? Plus, what does Lex Luthor's scheming mean for Gotham City when Bane and the villains are already in control? This extra-sized anniversary issue kicks off a new multi-part storyline that ties together all the threads of the first 74 issues of Tom King's epic Batman run. So yeah, this is also going to be a tie-in to the Year of the Villain, um, which is fine. Uh, Year of the Villain's the big crossover that's coming to DC right now, but I'm more excited about City of Bane as a story. So I really like this. It uh, The last issue, as you heard in the synopsis, left off with the climactic confrontation between uh, Batman and Flashpoint Batman, his father, in the pit in the middle of the desert. And as we saw, only one of them climbed out. We don't know which one just yet. So I'm excited. Uh, this book has been really, really good. I'm really excited to jump into the final act of this story. Another story that is heading towards its final act is Spider-Man Life Story, number five of six, written by Chip Zdarsky with Mark Bagley. This is going to be dealing with the 2000s. So uh, last issue was the 1990s and saw some big 
paradigm shifts for the character. So I love this story. Every issue has been fantastic. This is one of the most consistently great issues coming out of Marvel today, and I'm almost sad to see it go. I'm. Uh, we've got one more issue after this, and I have really loved getting these uh, little snippets, the little day-in-the-life stories of each decade. Certain issues I wish we could get even a full mini-series on per decade. It's That's just how good they've been. But I'm really excited about this. This is going to be a great issue, so let's jump into the synopsis here. The real-time life story of Spider-Man continues. The superhero civil war rocks the world. A hero's death changes everything for both Peter Parker and his family as life story continues into the 2000s. So yeah, uh, we're going to be dealing with civil war. Um, I wonder if they're going to touch on 9-11. Um, this book has been really good about kind of working Peter's narrative through uh, big events in the real world, as well as big events in the comics. The 80s storyline did deal with Secret War, so I'm really excited. We're going to be dealing with Civil War here. Again, this book has been so good. At this point, Peter is going to be, what, so 16 in the 60s, or 15 in the 60s, uh, 25 in the 70s, 35 in the 80s, 45 in the 90s. So Spider-Man is going to be 55 years old in this story. So I'm really excited. It's going to be so good. And um, once again, I just I can't wait to pick this book up. And that is going to do it for this week's Comics Countdown. To recap, we have Superior Spider-Man number 9, Jimmy Olsen number 1 of 12, Invaders number 7, Batman number 75, and Spider-Man Life Story number 5 of 6. So like I said, not a lot of books this week, but they are all high quality, and I implore you to pick all of these books up, especially Spider-Man Life Story. So that is going to do it for this week's episode. Let me know what you thought of everything we discussed. Feel free to reach out through our social media or through email. I've been loving getting to have conversations with you guys, having back and forths comparing uh, lists. Uh, last week was a very divisive list uh, from what I've heard from a couple of you, so I am excited to talk about how you feel about the Spider-Man PS4 game. How do you feel it ranks among all of the Spider-Man games? There's been a lot of love for Spider-Man 2, a lot of love for Web of Shadows. I personally remember really loving Ultimate Spider-Man, so... Uh, this game, I still think, stands uh, head and shoulders above everything else, but I would love to hear what you think about the game. And uh, next week, we're going to be diving into the cartoon side of the Spider-Man world as uh, Spider-Month rolls on. Thank you very much for listening all the way through. It really does help us out. Also, feel free to give us a rating and a review on iTunes. That gets us... So much more exposure allows people to uh, find us. I'm really excited that we are a global podcast. Let me pull up. I was really, really excited about... Um, I was looking through some of our statistics and uh, just finding out that we have listeners all around the world, not just in the U.S. You know I love you, U.S. audiences, but I also really love that we are being heard all around the world, in different countries, different continents. I just, I'm really excited. I'm looking at our stats right now, and we, believe it or not, believe it or not, we have listeners in Indonesia, we have listeners in Mexico, we have 
listeners in the Philippines. Hello, my listeners in the Philippines. I am half Filipino, so that makes me very happy. Uh, listeners in Brazil, listeners in Canada, Australia, all over the place, Ukraine as well. Thank you so much for making this a global podcast. It really, really helps me out. I love getting to talk to you guys about all this stuff. It's been incredible just kind of learning on the fly how to do this podcast thing. We are 65 episodes in. I can't tell you how many excited I am about that. Um, I didn't know that this podcast was going to make it to 65 episodes. I didn't know this podcast was going to make it past uh, 20 episodes, much less 65. So thank you so much for continuing to support us. I'm really, really thankful to everyone who gives us a listen and everyone who also uh, rates us, reviews us, and kind of talks about us to other people. So that really helps more than you know. Uh, but that's going to do it for this week's episode. Uh, look forward to our cartoon-focused episode next week. Same geek time, same geek channel. I want to give one more shout-out to my new soundtrack for allowing us to use their 8-bit rendition of the Spider-Man theme. And for Geek Explained, this is Eric Gazana. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you next time. <laughs>